Nobody can be too Jewish. That's exactly it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Joshua Cohen, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Netanyahu's. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at twojewishradio18 at gmail.com. Or visit us on the web at twojewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on Two Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. Two Jewish is paid for by Two Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and Two Jewish. Shalom. Hanukkah begins tonight at sundown for eight nights and days of celebration and joy, lights and latkes. But there's an interesting history to this holiday, and a somewhat controversial one. In fact, Hanukkah has a bit of a dark past that's more complicated and ambivalent than that of any other Jewish festival. The historical events Hanukkah celebrates are reasonably well known. In the 2nd century BCE, roughly 2200 years ago, Israel was part of the Seleucid Empire, created after Alexander the Great's early death by his general Seleucus. In that powerful kingdom, the Greek Hellenistic culture, with theaters, bathhouses, gymnasiums, and pagan temples, was encroaching steadily on all local cultures, including the Jews. Generally, though, the relationship remained peaceful. To set the scene for the explosion that led to Hanukkah, Greek-style towns and cities were founded next to older Jewish cities and towns. Next to them, but not of a piece with them. The Greeks and the Hellenized locals who lived in those towns wrestled at the gym, bathed in the hot and cold public baths, did business in the Agora, attended performances and concerts in theaters and amphitheaters, studied and argued philosophy and poetics, and worshipped a plethora of pagan gods in multiple temples with lots of statues. Jews who lived near them in the Jewish urban areas bathed in private mikvahs, shopped in the small stores near their homes, ate kosher food, studied the Torah and the Tanakh, the Bible, attended a Beit Midrash, a house of study, made pilgrimages to the great temple in Jerusalem three times a year for the major festivals. And, of course, the Jews worshipped one God. The two communities, Greek and Jewish, coexisted uneasily but peacefully. But the egotism that seems to accompany every authoritarian in the real world intervened. A king of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, decided it wasn't enough just to rule and have power. He also needed to be literally worshipped as a god, as his own idol, Alexander the Great, had been. Antiochus deified himself, called himself God, and insisted his subjects all worship him in addition to their own gods. In Israel, called Judea or Judah then, a small but strategically located backwater within the great Seleucid Empire, Jews worshipped the one God. When decrees went out requiring statues of Antiochus be erected in every town in Israel, and particularly that a great statue of the king Antiochus be placed in the holy temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish people reacted with shock. 
Most Jews, cowed by the power of the greatest army in the world, simply complied. But not all did. And soon Antiochus, Antiochus to the Jews, moved to force them to do so, promulgating hostile laws and then sending his military in to enforce them. In order to suppress this soon outlawed religion of Judaism, the teaching of Torah was banned on punishment of death. Observance of the Shabbat was outlawed. Circumcision and kosher slaughters were made capital crimes. In particular, instruction of children in the ways of our Jewish ancestors was absolutely forbidden, and those laws were enforced by squads of Seleucid soldiers armed with spears, swords, bows, and arrows. To emphasize the religious subjugation of the Jews, distinctly unkosher pigs were even sacrificed on the altar of the great temple itself, and the lights of the sacred menorah were extinguished. Judaism looked like it too was about to be extinguished. At first, many Jews simply complied with Antiochus's demands. His army was the most powerful in the world at the time. There seemed to be no alternative. But finally, the oppressed people of Israel could stand it no more. At this time of greatest darkness, one family rose up, refusing to bow to the idol of Antiochus, this truly evil emperor, led by Matityahu, Mattathias in the Greek pronunciation, a family known as the Hasmoneans struck back. The rebellion began in an obscure town in the Judean hills called Modin, with the overthrow of a tax collector and a refusal to bow down to that statue of Antiochus. The Hasmonean family, soon to be led by the most dynamic of Mattathias's sons, Judah, began a guerrilla war, hiding out in caves and forests, striking at the better armed and more numerous Seleucid armies. It was a careful campaign that gathered strength over time. In spite of the use of battle elephants brought from the empire's Indian possessions, they were the major battle tank of the era. In spite of all the military advantages that seemed to lie with the occupying power of the Seleucid Greeks, the Jews, led by Judah the Hammer, that's Maccabean Hebrew, more or less, gained the upper hand. The Syrian Greeks were driven from the main part of Israel and finally from the temple itself in Jerusalem. The temple was cleansed and prepared and turned again into the proper condition for sanctification and offerings. That rededication took place at a great festival of thanksgiving, what we call Hanukkah, meaning dedication. The lights of the Hanukkah menorah today remind us of this great miracle of our salvation from religious persecution, of the triumph of the few over the many, the weak over the strong, the believers over those who tried to destroy us. And now, another controversial part— the remarkable victory of Hanukkah was celebrated with an eight-day festival of thanksgiving. But the leaders of that great victory, the Maccabee family, the Hasmoneans, were corrupted by power. When the Jews decided which holidays should be celebrated fully, Hanukkah gradually diminished in religious importance as the rabbis turned against the corrupt Hasmoneans. Well, that was true until the last century, when Hanukkah had a huge comeback. It's now the second most widely celebrated Jewish festival of all, right after Passover, or maybe tied with it by now. And that's okay, because Hanukkah remembers an incredibly important set of historical events. Without Hanukkah, there would be no Judaism today. Of course, also no Christianity or Islam, daughter religions of Judaism. Hanukkah is a wonderful festival. 
and it's just a lot of fun. To play us in this morning for Hanukkah, on a much lighter note, here's one of my favorite silly Hanukkah songs, David Diggs' Puppy for Hanukkah, which came out a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, come on. You know what I want to... What you want, what you want, what you want, what you want? I want a puppy for Hanukkah. Want a puppy, want a puppy, want a puppy, want a puppy, want a puppy. And I'ma get just what I wanted, yep. Don't get it, don't get it, don't get it, don't get it, don't get it. I'ma get a puppy for Hanukkah. Get a puppy, get a puppy, get a puppy, get a puppy. Some kids write lists for their Christmas gifts and they send them all off to their Santas. But I don't trip off a list for my gift. I'ma get it cause I got eight chances. That's right, eight nights, festival of lights. Go hard for a week with a plus one. So y'all keep stressing, be good, learn lessons. But Hanukkah is the best fun. And you can laugh if you want to. But I'ma get a puppy for Hanukkah. So I'm pretty sure that it's just socks But you never know, miracles happen I tap in and start to rip the paper Oh please let it be the puppy that I wanted I don't wanna wait to Oh, yep, that's just socks I'ma get what I wanted to What you want, what you want, what you want, what you want, what you want I'ma get a puppy for Hanukkah That blessing is about now I've said it Not sure what it means but I learned it phonetic By the way you got a present for me is it what I wanted? Pass that shamus let's get the flame started Ooh for me? Oh, well, you, you shouldn't have. I, well, I guess I'll just, um... Oh, that's a, that's a sweater. D- did somebody knit this? It's really, it's really great. This isn't going how I saw it, huh? It ain't going well. It ain't going well. I really hope I get this puppy for Hanukkah. It's all I ever really wanted, though. Just a puppy for Hanukkah. Give me that dog. Lights keep burning and nights just pass. Menorah is now covered up with wax. I thought it would be obvious I didn't want to ask, but will tonight be the night I get my puppy at last? My feet are warm and my body is cozy. The hats and the mittens and umbrella are totally great. Love it all. I'm the king of style. There's one thing I've been wanting all this while. I... Wait. Wait, is that... Could it be? Oh my gosh. You're everything I ever wanted for. You're my puppy for Hanukkah. I'ma name you Monica. Probably not. That's a weird name for a dog. But it rhymes with Hanukkah. I got my Hanukkah puppy. 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 I got my Hanukkah puppy.
Hanukkah starts at sundown tonight. Eight wonderful nights of lights and latkes and lots of music. Join us at Beit Simcha, our fourth anniversary, fourth night of Hanukkah celebration, Be the Light, Wednesday, December 21st, 5.30 p.m. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org and sign up for a fabulous, elegant evening of music, latkes, candles, song, and joy. Our guest this morning on Two Jewish is Joshua Cohen, author of the incredible novel The Netanyahu's, which won not only the National Jewish Book Award, but, by the way, a Pulitzer Prize. Meet this terrific author and great guest when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Be the Light is coming up fast. The best Hanukkah party in southern Arizona features gourmet latkes, elegant appetizers, delicious drinks of all kinds, Hanukkah menorah lighting and songs, fourth anniversary cake and desserts, dreidel games, a raffle with fabulous prizes, elegant Hanukkah musical entertainment, and much more. Join us Wednesday night, December 21st, for a fabulous celebration of the fourth night of the Festival of Lights and Congregation Beit Simha's fourth birthday celebration. There will be catered food, fun, and frolic. Be the Light is the best way to rejoice on Hanukkah this year. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up for Be the Light and make it a wonderful Hanukkah in person this year. That's Wednesday night, December 21st at 6.30 p.m. at BeitSimcha.org. Celebrate and enjoy, and this Hanukkah you can Be the Light. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Joshua Cohen is, I think, one of the most interesting and exciting writers on the American scene and soon to be one of the more accomplished ones. His new book uh, is called The Netanyahu's. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the National Jewish Book Award. He's also the author of Wits, the Book of Numbers and Moving Kings, worked as a journalist in Eastern Europe, um, and writes in a startling way. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Oh, thank you. Good morning. So the idea for the Netanyahu's, um, where did it come from? You know, where did the idea for the Netanyahu's, the, the family, come from? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, it, it really came from uh, an anecdote told to me by the American literary critic Harold Bloom, who uh, was somewhat of a mentor of mine and was recalling to me toward the end of his life the story of meeting Benzion Netanyahu, the patriarch of the uh, Netanyahu family, uh, the father of, of Yoni, Bibi, and Ido. Um, Benzion Netanyahu was an academic, and he, uh, for various reasons, couldn't get work in early state Israel and found himself sort of peddling himself around the uh, American adjunct uh, market seeking a, a tenure job uh, in his field, which is medieval European history, specifically the history of the Inquisition. Yeah, I mean, his, in Peninsula. his what they call it usually the magisterial work on the Inquisition, which means it's much too long, but it's he really was the uh, the scholar of the Inquisition. Well, yeah, I mean, the scholar of sort of not not just the Inquisition, but multiple Inquisitions. Right, and, right. And, and, and specifically... Uh, he drew a distinction between the papal inquisition, papal and the Spanish inquisition, right? 
Yeah, and then the political inquisitions, which were when when essentially the the you know nobility of the Iberian Peninsula tried to use the Jews as a wedge issue, let's say, uh, to combat the uh, influence of the papacy. So, um, and Harold Bloom, as you note, was not only a mentor to you, but he loved your work and wrote movingly about it. Um, so he directed you in this, you know, the, to this story. Uh, it, it. Oh, I know. He didn't direct me to this story. No, no. I was, I was, you know, helping him put together his memoirs. Ah, and he okay. had far more interesting stories to tell in his <laughs> mind. Interesting. He was telling me stories about going skinny dipping with, with Jacques Derrida. He had, you know, uh, things about Paul DeMond, about John Ashbery, and, and, and in the middle of kind of talking about, I'm not even sure what, some, some memory maybe of Delmore Schwartz, uh, there was, uh, BB came on the TV, I think CNN was on mute in the background, and he said, oh, I met that guy. And I was like, you know, when did you meet him? Like in the 90s or something? And he said, no, I think he was 10 years old. Oh, my God. And then, and I think he didn't, truly understand my interest in the story. I mean, for him, it was an episode of, it truly was a minor episode. It was, it was a weekend encounter. They never became friendly, right. um, which is an understatement. But, but they, um, you know, he, he, Harold was a person that, you know, he, he, it was a Harold-centric universe. It was the world revolving around him in many ways. And, you know, and, 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 and of all the astral bodies, you know, he truly deserved to be the center of things. Yes. And, uh, uh, but, but this story, I think he thought was, you know, a humorous minor incident. And I, I didn't really have the chance before he died to tell him sort of what the, the depths I thought I found in it. I mean, I, he died before uh, this book came out. We will talk much more with Joshua Cohen about his extraordinary book, The Nittad Yahoos, and, and writing in general when we come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in the Catalina foothills and northwest Tucson, celebrates a fantastic array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives daily to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, beitsimchatucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary and, of course, on our Facebook page. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious school is going for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us for Hebrew school, barn bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with fabulous Jewish learning. Go to beitsimchatucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, tucson.org to sign up. And come Wednesday night, December 21st, Be the Light, our fourth anniversary celebration on the fourth night of Hanukkah, an event filled with song, food, drink, and joy. Sign up soon. Join me and Be the Light. We have incredible raffle prizes that night for sponsors and everybody who attends. Don't miss this great evening. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. 
Friday night, Saturday morning. Friday night is at 6.30 p.m. in person or on our Facebook page. Saturday morning services are at 10 a.m. preceded at 9 a.m. by Torah study. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson. All of our services are in person and by virtual experience. Our Adult Education Academy classes, including Introductory Judaism and our Conversion class, are live and on Zoom. Email me, rabbi at beitsimchatucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, tucson.org. Religious school is also available in blended format, some students live, some on Zoom. For more about Beit Simcha, to attend services, religious school and Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, our rich array of adult education academy courses, and Be the Light this coming Wednesday night and all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675, that's 520-276-5675, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, fastest-growing and most active Jewish congregation in southern Arizona, celebrating its fourth anniversary this week. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows, there's more than a thousand of them, through our website, 2JewishRadio.com, streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as ridiculously popular podcast, top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean, and now on Spotify, too. Please post a rating, review 2Jewish wherever you listen to us, those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We tend to think about the Jewish world as, uh, oh, you're Ashkenazic or you're Sephardic. 
but that is way too simplistic and often not very accurate. Yeah, it's it's wrong, it's misleading, it's shockingly ignorant. Um, <laughs> shockingly ignorant? Yeah. No, I think you should say what you really feel, Tom. Okay. No, I've, I've said enough on that score. But um, yes, we live, I think, in an increasingly binary world that forces us to make choices between black and white, good and evil, yes and no, and... It's at odds with our growing learning about life and biology. and We should be less binary than we used to be in our thinking, but we're not. And I think this myth of everybody's either Ashkenazic or Sephardic started in Israel and was perpetrated by Ashkenazic Jews when they were by far the majority of the Jews living in Israel. And... Basically, everybody who wasn't them was Sephardic. The truth is, as you just intimated, much more complicated. So let's get into this. I mean, it might take a couple of sessions, but... Okay. So, I mean, first of all, who's Ashkenazic? Well, ultimately, Ashkenaz is a place or a conceptual space in the heart of Europe, in the Rhine Valley, for example, that separates Germany from France and that heart of Europe. Where, where by the way, my uh, grandmother on my dad's side family came from and we found exactly where along the Rhine they came from. But then as Jews moved further east, which they did later to places like Poland and much of what we now consider Eastern Europe and of course Ukraine, let's not forget, The Jewish arrival in those spaces was later than the Jewish presence in Ashkenaz. And those Jews became, by default, also Ashkenazic. But most Ashkenazic Jews have grandparents who spoke Yiddish. In the Ashkenazic world, Yiddish was the lingua franca, which enabled Jews of different countries, wildly different countries, like France and Poland, to communicate in Mamaloshin, which is Yiddish for the mother tongue. The mother tongue, yeah. Um, But other Jewish populations in Europe and elsewhere also developed dialects of their own versions of Mamaloshin, and there's a lot of examples of this. But the primary example is Ladino, which was the language spoken in the Iberian Peninsula, which is to say both Spain and Portugal. Of course, then there was no such thing as Spain. Spain was a bunch of different countries. Navarre, Aragon, all all kinds of places. Leon, Castile, I mean, on and on, which eventually were merged by stealth, by force, whatever, by dynastic marriages. And that became Spain. And the whole Iberian Peninsula spoke a language that, sort of mixes classic, the Spanish of Cervantes and his period with Hebrew. And it could be written in either Latin characters or Hebrew characters, but it was their lingua franca. And then it spread far beyond the Iberian Peninsula in a process that I'll describe next time. We will continue to explore the Sephardic world and and how that's how that can be made clearer and more accurate in the way that we think about it when we come back next week. Thanks, Tom. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. And this one is an annual Hanukkah classic. (laughs) 
An aged bubby walks into the post office to buy stamps for her Hanukkah cards. She says to the clerk, May I have 50 Hanukkah stamps, please? What denomination? asks the clerk. And the woman answers, Oy vey, has it come to this? Fine. Give me uh, six Orthodox, 12 Conservative, and 32 Reform stamps. Yes, yes, I know you've heard that before, but remember, this is the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of Two Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. In this week's portion of Meet Kate's, we're in the midst of the fabulous story of Joseph, now shorn of his technicolor dream coat and locked away in an Egyptian prison. Again, here dreams play a central role, not for the first time in Genesis, not for the first time even in the Joseph story. In Mikates, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, dreams a famous dream. Seven fat cows emerge from the Nile and are eaten by seven skinny cows. Then seven fat ears of grain are devoured by seven lean ears of grain. What does it all mean? None of the Egyptian king's brilliant advisors and counselors can help him. Apparently, his cabinet selection team has failed. In desperation, he turns to a forgotten Hebrew prisoner who once helped his chief bartender, um, wine steward, when he was in jail with him. Joseph is dragged out of prison, cleaned up, and brought to the pharaoh, probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. Joseph hears the dream and correctly interprets it as prophesying seven years of plenty to be followed by seven years of famine. Giving full credit to God for being his only source of insight, Joseph helps the Pharaoh save Egypt, and things go well both for the Pharaoh and for Egypt. He rises to great prominence, second in command of the whole country, and the Pharaoh's power is multiplied while his people are saved from destruction. Joseph marries and has two children, but oddly, his great success, his fame throughout Egypt, and his new family aren't quite enough for Joseph. He misses his father, left behind in Canaan, and pines for his younger brother Benjamin, only living reminder of his dead mother, Rachel. He never expects to see his father and full brother again. But then, in a plot twist worthy of our finest novels, his brothers are compelled by famine to come down to Egypt to buy bread. Suddenly the same characters who beat Joseph and sold him into slavery are completely in his power. What an amazing opportunity for revenge. And in this week's Torah portion of Mikates, Joseph seems to take advantage of that. He teases and torments his brothers. Joseph, fully aware of their identity and the brothers, completely ignorant of his. What will happen? As the Torah portion concludes, we're left wondering which way it'll all go. But tune in next week to get the answer. But this week, the issue is clearly delineated. How exactly will a prominent assimilated Jew respond to pressure to hide his own identity? Just as the Jews in the days of the Maccabees struggled with tremendous pressure to accept cultural subjugation and give up Judaism, so too Joseph struggled hiding his identity, not admitting it in public. In a season in which the majority culture can overwhelm Jews with songs, foods, and religious trappings, we too sometimes struggle to assert our pride in our own Jewish identities. May we learn from the lessons of Joseph and the Maccabees that Jewish identity has to be asserted proudly and with commitment, 
even in the darkest of days. And may you personally be blessed starting tonight with a festival of great light, a happy and meaningful Hanukkah. When we come back on to Jewish, our guest this morning, Joshua Cohen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Netanyahu's, tells us how he came up with the idea for his fabulous book about assimilation, difference, and Jewish identity in the late 1950s and, well, now. Find out. Come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Turkey arrested 44 people last week. Officials claimed it was for involvement with the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service. Those arrested are mostly Turkish citizens. No Israelis were arrested, and the group includes several private detectives as well as the director of a private detective firm. According to Turkish media, the arrested have been accused of shadowing Palestinians and pro-Palestinian organizations in Turkey. Israel has not publicly addressed the arrests. Those arrests came at a warming point in Turkish-Israeli relations. The two countries recently exchanged ambassadors for the first time in years. This past spring, the Mossad's collaboration with the Turkish intelligence service was touted as essential in ending a plot by an Iranian-backed terror cell that targeted Israeli tourists in Istanbul. Still, Turkey has continued to work closely with the leadership of Hamas and others that Israel, well, considers terror groups because they are This is a very clear message to Israel. Normalization does not mean you can act against Palestinians inside Turkish territory, said Hayetan Kohenyanorocek, a Turkish scholar at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Turkey has used the claim of Mossad involvement to arrest others before. Last year, an Israeli couple spent eight days in a Turkish prison for taking pictures of Istanbul's Dolmabahce Palace. That palace, which housed the final sultans of the Ottoman Empire from 1856 until its dissolution, is largely a tourist site. I personally have visited the Dombabachi Palace. It's a surprisingly interesting place with beautiful gardens, but it does also include the Istanbul offices of the Turkish president. That Israeli couple was charged with political and military espionage, but their release was ultimately secured. Through discussions between Israeli President Isaac Herzog and Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The latter credited his discussion with Herzog as kicking off the thaw in Turkish Israeli relations, which had been frigid since the 2010's Mavi Marmara incident, when Israeli security forces raided a fleet headed to Gaza, killing 10 Turkish mm, activists. You never really know which direction Turkish dictator Erdogan is going to blow. Probably the case with every single autocrat in the world. And one hopes that this is a temporary and not permanent move towards Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Lots of movement in Washington around combating anti-Semitism last week. First, Doug Emhoff, Kamala Harris's Jewish husband, chaired a roundtable with Jewish organizational leaders on anti-Semitism. And then President Joe Biden set up an interagency task force to combat anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia. The group's first task is coming up with a strategy to tackle the rise in anti-Semitism. 
This strategy will raise understanding about anti-Semitism and the threat it poses to the Jewish community and all Americans, address anti-Semitic harassment and abuse, both online and offline, seek to prevent anti-Semitic attacks and incidents, and encourage whole-of-society efforts to counter anti-Semitism and build a more inclusive nation, Biden's spokeswoman said. Emhoff's 90-minute meeting last week came on the heels of weeks of anti-Semitic invectives spewed by rapper Kanye West, who now goes by Ye, and the dinner attended last month by Kanye West, Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, and former President Donald Trump at Trump's Florida residence. That discussion followed alarming spikes in anti-Semitic invective on Twitter and other platforms. A bipartisan slate of lawmakers last week urged Biden to establish a task force on anti-Semitism. It is now a fact that new task force will be led by domestic policy council staff as well as national security council staff. And in a move that will frustrate and anger non-ultra-Orthodox Israelis, last week Israeli Prime Minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu pledged to the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox parties that his next government, under him, will follow a policy according to which a yeshiva student exemption from military service will be continued or extended. The quote was, no one will go to prison for learning Torah, unquote. Netanyahu's pledge was made during talks with representatives of the Haredi parties, United Torah Judaism and Shas. They were having discussions on the exemption of yeshiva students from military service in the IDF. After many hours of discussions in recent days by senior members of the party with Bibi Netanyahu and other Likud members, they reached this agreement, giving away most of the ultra-Orthodox party's demands. According to the agreements, the Israeli government will advance a basic law on Torah study, designated studying in yeshiva as a core legal value. That'll make it difficult for the High Court of Justice to invalidate the arrangement, exempting Torah students from serving in the IDF. While originally intended to exempt high-level Talmud students of exceptional brilliance from the universal Israeli military service in the IDF, the yeshiva exemption, first begun under David Ben-Gurion, now allows hundreds of thousands of Haredi young men and all Haredi ultra-Orthodox young women from any service in the military or any other form of national service. While the ultra-Orthodox form 13% of the Israeli population now, nearly a million people, and many of them are young and of draft age, virtually none of them serve in the IDF. According to figures released recently, 88% of Haredim are under the age of 25. 88%. Get in the latest available figures from 2019, a little over 1,000 Haredim total, ultra-Orthodox men, choose to serve in the IDF. Do a little math. We can see that perhaps 200,000 young ultra-Orthodox men got the yeshiva deferment from national service. While the vast majority of modern Orthodox reform, Masorati and Chiloni, that is non-ultra-Orthodox religious Jews, liberal religious Jews, secular Israelis, serve in the IDF, Haredim do not. This fact is nearly universally resented by the Israeli population that bears the responsibility of defending the state against its many enemies. Most young Israeli men serve nearly three years in the IDF before college or work. Most young Israeli women serve nearly two years in the IDF before college or work, but not Haredim. It appears Netanyahu's new government would not only preserve the ultra-Orthodox exemption, but seek to make it a more ironclad rule. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews around the world.
The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Joshua Cohen is the author of The Nitad Yahoos, which won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the National Jewish Book Award. The book was published in uh, 2021. He's also the author of Wits, the Book of Numbers, and Moving Kings. Um, he wrote Edward Snowden's story into a book, uh, which must have been an interesting challenge as well. I, I, I just want to share, I actually was in Israel for the first time when the Entebbe raid took place and Yoni Netanyahu was killed. Um, I met Bibi Netanyahu a couple of times with rabbinic groups, so I had a, a kind of opportunity to get a sense of him. How did you um, flesh out the character of ben Sion Netanyahu, the father? Well, I mean, I was far more interested, right, in the, in the father than, 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 frankly, any of the sons. Sure. And, you know, I mean, there, there is something about people whose politics are, you know, distasteful to you or odious to you or, or you know, maybe just not your politics. Um, and there's, there's a difference when that person has power and when they don't. When a person you disagree with doesn't have power, they've also become somewhat of a tragic figure. And that, for me, was Benzio Netanyahu. I mean, he was a man who wanted to be useful to his state. He wanted to be useful to uh, uh, the founding of his country and instead found himself during the most consequential decade of modern Jewish history, you know, not being murdered in Europe, luckily, and uh, not truly building his state, but but in suburban uh, New York and then suburban Philadelphia. And there was a feeling of being excluded from history, of being lost from history and being denied his rightful place because of his association with the movement of revisionist Zionism. And, and the fact that, that, that labor Zionism up high were, were, were founders of the early state, for whom he was persona non grata. And uh, look, as a novelist, it's not hard to imagine resentment. <laughs> and rejection, too. <laughs> rejection, resentment, entitlement, all the male emotions. <laughs> <laughs> um, the... Um, uh, 
I, I, I'm trying to, somebody described your style as mordant. Um, it is really. Which always seemed, it's always struck me as a kind of cheese, like, you know, like fondant or something like, what, what would you like on your pizza? Some mordant. Yeah, or or maybe a cake um, icing that you can't really bite through. Um, right, it's just there for decoration. The richness of language, however, is extraordinary. When you write, do you just write? Do you sit down? Do you think, you know, I really want to make this overwrought? Like, how do you, how do you decide? I mean, I think with every book, it's different. With this book, I uh, this book really has a, a sort of shadow subject that um that tends to be obscured or was obscured and i'm not complaining about critical response i'm grateful for all critical response but but most people see the netanyahu's it's in the title this is my fault you know most people think of about the netanyahu's and for me it's really about american jewry and it's about uh specifically american jewish writing and the way it was accepted as american writing you know the book is set in 1959 1960 that's the year of goodbye columbus and so with this book, a lot of the, the style was me saying, OK, I'm going to spend the rest of my life living in the shadow of, of Roth and Bello and Malamud and, 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 and Ozik. And we, we, we can name our, you know, our own yeah, heroes of course. Uh, And I'm going to have to be hearing about these people until I'm dead. You know, so, <laughs> you know, maybe the way to deal with what Harold Bloom would call the anxiety of influence would be to essentially... Uh, write a book that they would have written if they had been paying attention to the politics that I considered to have been important in 1959-1960 with the benefit of hindsight. So uh, so the, the stylistic thing was saying, could I write a, a book that is essentially a, a combination of these styles that I grew up on, but direct them toward a politics that, um, that the writers at the time, you know, weren't handling. And I think we should remember, you know, I'm not, I'm not meaning this as a critique that, that, that Jewish American writers in the 1950s neglected writing about Israel. I mean, the truth is, Jewish American writers in the 1950s neglected writing about the Shoah. Well, they, they didn't write about it at all. The people who wrote about it were, were not Americans. It was Elie Wiesel. It was, you know, uh, people coming from Europe who'd been through it who were survivors. All right. And this was, and, and the 50s and 60s was the, the first real chance to write about the Jewish American experience as an American experience. And so it was my hope to kind of turn those years of fat and plenty where, you know, American Jews were celebrating this kind of first burst of true assimilation and being considered 100 percent American or, you know, to a degree. Um, the uh, uh, what if we actually directed our gaze outwards uh, to the rest of the Jewish world that was undergoing a massive change as, a, as the large the two largest Jewish populations at, at mid-century are both undergoing complete overhauls. Right. There right. is. There is, you know, the assimilation of and the American Jewish success story, and then there's the creation of Israeli identity. So your protagonist is really um, the example of uh, the assimilationist, uh, the professor, the only Jewish guy on the faculty, maybe the only Jewish human being involved with the university he serves, um, fitting in as well as he can all of the kind of standard Jewish tropes. He describes himself at one point as kind of a Woody Allen figure, uh, looking back on it. And then he comes into contrast with the Netanyahu's. Um, neither one looks very good, actually. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it, I think it's, for me, it was presenting this false choice, right? I mean, one can become, uh, uh, your only choice is to become another, 
and the two others that you're offered, essentially, I uh, erase so much of what's important to me about Jewish culture and identity. Joshua, I have to say, you talk the way you write, which is not typical of every author. Um, <laughs> you're beginning to sound slightly if only like a. It was as easy to write as to talk. Yeah, I know. God, what's, that's the old line. It's like sitting down until blood comes out of your forehead. Um, right, right. By the way, that was written by a sports writer, I think, originally, quoted by a lot of other people. Uh, um, you begin to sound a little bit like a revisionist Zionist yourself. Yeah, well, you know, it depends what you're revising and what you're revising it to. In creating this book, which is uh, not history, right? It's a novel, and it's a novel based on real people in real world. Uh, one, a real family in a real situation. Um, you know, that's a fine line to tread to have live historical figures in a fairly contemporary novel. You're not writing about, I don't know, Hamilton or something um, in, a, in a novelization. What was the most exciting thing to do and what was the most challenging thing to do? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I didn't... I didn't care. <laughs> um, I, 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 I was born and grew up in, in, in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, I'd been hearing the word Trump since I was born. My father sued him multiple times. Um, spending time in, in Israel and just growing up into you know, Jewish schools, you know, I've heard the name Netanyahu for, for over two and a half decades. I mean, he came and visited my school when he was UN ambassador. Um, you know, he, South Jersey is the summer home for Philadelphia. We knew a lot of people in the Netanyahu's. These were names that I had heard throughout my life. And when you hear a name long enough, it becomes empty. It's almost becomes like a generic brand term, like Kleenex or Tylenol. And, um, and, and I, I, especially under the Trump administration, I became really frustrated. Just, you know, why should I have to hear this guy's name every day and hear and, and follow all the travails of his like disgusting family. And why do I need to know all of this gossip? And why can't, why is there, why can't I uh, ignore it, push it out? And, and, and the fact that I was beat over the head with these names, these like, you know, celebrity politicians, I felt like this was kind of getting my own back. This was getting my, my revenge. It's like, Oh, well, if you've so hollowed out your name, uh, I'll use it. It's um, a fantastic book, the Netanyahu's. Uh, when you finished, were you glad to let it go? Uh, it was in the middle of the first lockdown here in New York, and uh, I wasn't glad about anything. <laughs> but but I did I did it, you know it, it was in some way therapeutic to write a comedy during during that time. I mean, a few hundred people dying a day. My brother was a is a doctor in the city and was, was doing emergency dialysis and people who were dying. And I was sitting in my house in my underwear writing jokes. So, you know, I felt, I felt in some way very privileged and lucky, yeah. but it was, you know, I, I, it was therapeutic. Yeah. All right. Well, so the last question, does your mother say, yeah, he won the Pulitzer prize, but his brother is a doctor. Right, exactly, exactly. She asks me, she asks me, you know, how much money comes with the, the, the prize, and when I tell her, she, she goes, per month? And I said, no. <laughs> no, no, it's one time. <laughs> it's one time, one time. And, and you have to pay taxes on it? Yes. Yes, Mom, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book is the Netanyahu's. Joshua, where can people go? I feel like we could talk for an hour. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you and more about your, your work? Uh, 
have a web, a website. They can say joshuacohen.org. And you know, I don't know. You're out of you're out of Tucson, right? I don't we know, are. What, what is the what is the good independent bookstore in Tucson? You got to support those. Places. Uh, Antigone is pretty good. Uh, they don't advertise on my show, but that's still, I think, the best independent uh, bookstore, Antigone. Um, and everything else. Well, now else. they now they need to. Yes. Now they have to advertise. Now they have a reason. Joshua, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, and happy Hanukkah. You too. Hanukkah Sameach. When we come back on To Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Shirley Russick Wachtel, author of the novel A Castle in Brooklyn. Don't forget to join us at Beit Simcha every Friday night. Services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. And come to our Beit Simcha, Be the Light, fourth anniversary, fourth night of Hanukkah celebration this Wednesday at my own home. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Our playout. This morning comes for Hanukkah, starting tonight for eight crazy nights. 613's new parody for Hanukkah and Elton John Hanukkah. I kid you not, although they do. My friends, have a Chag Hanukkah Sameach, a Chag Urim Sameach, a happy and wonderful holiday of lights beginning tonight at sunset. Have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. And I think it's gonna be a long eight nights to celebrate Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.